0: You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. In the past several weeks, people in many parts of the globe have resumed some of their pre-pandemic habits. Maybe you, our listeners, have recently seen a movie at a movie theater or flown on a plane or maybe even just gotten a cup of coffee on your way to the office for the first time in over a year. But a return to normal won't look the same for everyone. It's far from clear what the next 12 to 24 months will bring with regard to consumer behavior. What's almost certain is that consumers won't simply revert to doing exactly what they did in 2019. And today, we'll be hearing from three people who intensively study consumer behavior around the world. They'll be sharing fascinating insights into how consumers are changing and what companies should do about it. So some brief introductions, and then we'll dive right in. Carrie Aldridge is a McKinsey partner based in Minneapolis. Carrie has been advising consumer goods companies for more than 20 years on a variety of topics, including sales and marketing and growth strategy. She is an author of several articles, including a recent one on COVID 19's impact on demand and costs in the consumer packaged goods industry. Thanks for joining us today, Carrie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to join the conversation. Anna Grimelt is a senior expert in McKinsey's consumer practice. She is based in Stamford, Connecticut. Anna has been one of the driving forces behind McKinsey's Consumer Sentiment Survey, which was launched in 2008 and during the pandemic has expanded to 45 countries and provides a rich fact base for how consumers are feeling about their finances and how their buying behavior is changing. Thanks for being here, Anna. Thanks, Monica. Glad to be here. And our third guest is Anjali Lai, a senior analyst at Forrester. Anjali, who is based in New York City, helps chief marketing officers and other business leaders understand the shifts in consumer behavior and consumer decision-making, and then figure out what these changes mean for the future of brands and industries. So glad to have you with us today, Anjali. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So all three of you have been keeping your finger on the pulse of the consumer, so to speak, right before the pandemic and throughout the pandemic and much has been written by you and by others on some of the big trends in consumer behavior, you know, the shift to digital and e-commerce, you know, a greater willingness to try new brands, et cetera. And we'll talk about some of those trends a little later, but first I'd love to hear from all three of you, any surprises? Is there anything that was unexpected or is there anything that seemed to be going a certain way in, say March or April, 2020 that looks different
1: today? I serve a lot of the large branded consumer packaged foods manufacturers, and if I um, roll the clock back to 2019 or early 2020, um, the topic on the minds of all of my clients was um, portfolio shaping and how to reimagine their portfolios away from center of store food products, away from big Brands uh, and uh, engage with consumers in very different, more targeted, uh, niche-oriented ways. Um, I think the degree to which the pandemic, in some ways, not not surprisingly, pushed people back toward big brands in the center of the store and cooking, cooking at home, has really been a complete turnaround or reversal of fortune for many of my clients. I think. Um, again, some of those changes could have been anticipated, but others um, others are, are, are quite shocking. Um, the, the notion that bread baking would become a phenomenon among millennials um, or that pet ownership would skyrocket uh, to the extent that it has and that those same millennials would be willing to spend more than they spend on their daily Starbucks to feed their new pets um, was also quite surprising. So. Uh, many of those same companies that were desperately searching for growth, um, you know, 18 months ago, now have the opposite problem where their supply chains can't keep up. I think the big question for all of them, and this is probably where Anjali and, and Anna can uh, weigh in, is, you know, which of those behaviors are truly going to persist and be sticky coming out of this pandemic? Certainly, you um, the, the dog that you adopted is likely to stay uh, to stay at home? But when you go back to ordering your daily Starbucks and spending $7 a day on a coffee, are you going to spend the same to feed your pet? Um, I think those are the questions that are in all of my
2: clients' minds. We saw in the pandemic a complete shift from pre-pandemic, the growth of the smaller, more niche brands that were more targeted to the individual consumer. And of course, in the pandemic, this large Uh, CPG players that really gained scale because they had their products that were available. They were available on the shelf. They were also brands that were trusted most of the time by consumers. So you felt good of buying them. So if you look at point of sales data from an IRI or a Nielsen, then you really say that these large companies with more than two and a half billion in retail sales in the U.S. market picked up most of the share growth early on in the pandemic, whereas smaller and mid-sized companies, as well as private label we're really not picking up the growth. In the second half of the pandemic, if we can speak about the second half now, right of the second half of 2020, early 2021, it is more switching towards the smaller mid-sized companies that are regaining their sales growth. Um, and we expect, of course, that private label is gonna be powerful again, because if you go underneath and you dive into why do consumers pick a new brand, why did they pick the brands that they chose, it was availability, it was value, it was purpose, but it was also price points, it's gonna change. So moving forward, the value is going to be even more important and private label will be more strength strengthening in the future
3: one of the things that really surprised me that connects to what you said that is sort of a theme throughout the research that we've been doing over the past year and continue to do is the role um, of emotion in consumer decision making and how emotion is driving behavior um, you know marketers often rely on Uh, fairly traditional demographics to segment their consumers, to make sense of behavior change, right? To figure out what kind of experience and messaging will resonate best. Marketers are looking at things like gender or age group, right? Those are probably the most fundamental foundational uh, consumer characteristics to use to create segmentation. But what we found that was particularly surprising is that Younger consumers were oftentimes just as fearful about the spread of the coronavirus as their older counterparts. Um, There were no statistically significant differences across gender. Marketers have had to lean in much more to the key emotions that were uh, explaining how consumers were perceiving of the pandemic uh, crisis, how they were making sense of it and internalizing it, and how those emotions were driving behaviors. That's how you get these um, potentially unexpected patterns, right, that arise. So that's the the young consumer who's baking bread. It's the going to buy tickets on the flight to nowhere, right? Buy a ticket to just go through the security line at the airport and sit on board the plane and never take off, right? Or buy a ticket to the cruise to nowhere that you know was popular in uh, places like Singapore, right? The cruise that, that allowed consumers to spend a week on board and, and never leave the port. But then you also have consumers on the other end of the spectrum who are really uh, experiencing high levels of fear for of course their physical health but also their financial health and the uncertainty around the state of the economy in the future this almost illogical irrational um, uh, attempt on consumers parts to protect themselves from this looming uh, intensifying crisis so i think that role of emotion has been a consistent theme for me Um, in terms of something that's been particularly surprising. So many different directions we can take
0: because you guys have mentioned so many different things. But, you know, all three of you, to some extent, have written about Customer loyalty, right? How to win in it, how to retain it, particularly in an environment where people are willing to try new brands. And you've talked about, you know, the small dra- brands versus the bigger ones. And Anna and Carrie, you've found that 39% of consumers tried new brands during the pandemic. And Anjali, in your research, you've found that small brands are particularly good at earning consumers trust and consequently their loyalty. So talk about this notion of trust. You know, Anjali, in a recent blog post, you wrote, now is the time for companies to embrace trust as a strategic imperative. What does that mean? How should companies do that? And maybe give some examples of companies that are doing a good job at this.
3: We've seen that consumers' willingness to experiment in general has been growing. So in 2010, for instance, 44% of US online adults said that they were always willing to try or do new things, right? Try out new brands or new products. Fast forward to 2020 and 53% of US consumers are saying the same thing. And this trend, this upward sort of swing towards more and more experimentation is evident in the other countries and where we're studying consumers in Europe and Asia Pacific. And so you know, when we say that this is the company's moment to kind of build trust, companies have to try harder to prove that A, they are worthy of a consumer's trust, right? That they have the perception that they will fulfill their promises so that consumers are willing to try those companies out and B, that they can experientially deliver on the promises they make. So when we look at sort of how trust has shifted, right? Over time, um, Consumer trust in uh, large social institutions has been fracturing. That's something we saw particularly during the pandemic, but it didn't start during the pandemic. This has been happening for many, many years. Uh, we've seen consumer trust in uh, family and friends growing. We've seen trust in peers, right? Fellow consumers growing. Again, that's not something that the pandemic started, but it was more accentuated during the last uh, you know, 16 months or so. Um, One of the biggest shifts in this trust transformation has been consumers' reliance on companies to help the consumer live the quality of life he or she wants. And that has really become evident during the course of the pandemic. And so now, in many of the countries where we're studying consumers, consumers are more willing to believe that companies will follow through on their promises then the local or the national government, then religious institution, or you know a social kind of institution, social group. This is the moment when this, the you know, CEO, the CMO have to work together to understand how to take advantage of this moment and build essentially like trust capital that will help them through the next several years of this continued transformation.
1: I think two interesting things, um, Anjali, that I am seeing with my clients that um, I think are in response to the trends that you just talked about uh, are the degree to which uh, even relatively mundane consumer packaged goods companies are thinking about the end-to-end consumer journey, including consumer experience pre- and post-purchase, as they're trying to both understand how to serve their existing consumers, but also... Um, looking for new ways to better meet consumer needs. So the notion that there is a pre and post purchase experience related to a can of soda or a can of soup is a relatively novel idea, right? It's a can of soda or a can of soup, but um, increasingly the most forward thinking of my clients, you know, are really doing research across that entire spectrum to be able to understand consumers' needs as they're considering the the range of options that are available to them, all the way through to satisfaction with the, you know, usage and even disposal of the packaging of the products that they offer. The other interesting thing that I'm seeing is a recognition Um, among my clients that um, marketing is a two-way dialogue and the degree to which the consumer themselves now owns or shapes the narratives of many of their brands. So, you know, and and again, this was happening before the pandemic, but I think was just, you know, vastly accelerated during the pandemic. The notion that a marketer um, positions their brand and delivers a message and a promise to consumers um, is really becoming quite an antiquated one, I think. Um, as the consumer themselves, through reviews and ratings and blogs and videos and social media posts, really, you know shapes the identity of many of these brands. and And to the point that you made, um, in a way, that is the new, you know, virtual friends and family recommendation um, for many of these brands and becomes part of their identity. and, And that is critical to shaping, you know, both loyalty and consumer trust.
3: It reminds me of one of the really interesting nuances in our trust research that showed that yes, of course, trust is important to the consumer's relationship with the brand. It always has been, it always will be. But what signals that a brand is trustworthy is changing. You know, years ago, trust used to be about um, brand ubiquity, right, size, history, legacy, and many of the CPG companies really poured an immense amount of money and manpower into building this brand story that touted their size and and their reach, right? At that point, trust was about, um, uh, you know, having the track record, but now we're seeing that Those are not necessarily the elements that are convincing consumers that a company is trustworthy. Now it's things like, uh, does this company stand for the same values that I care about? Does this company express authenticity in its marketing messaging and experience and its storytelling around the brand and product and what that whole narrative looks like? Um, Does this uh, company exude a sense of empathy? Do I believe that this company understands how I feel in this particular moment? So having the CPG kind of think about the product experience more broadly shows that those big companies are moving in this direction of thinking more holistically and in a more sort of emotional way to resonate with consumers. I think that's one of the things that the smaller companies have done really well, right, is that they have an advantage of showing empathy and authenticity and anchoring their brand story in a set of values. And that's what has helped those small companies kind of establish that trusting bond with consumers right off the bat.
2: Our research really corroborates that. So we found in our research that the millennial and the Gen Z consumer is about 33% of them indicate that they pick a brand from a company that has their values versus about 12% from boomers. But everyone is leaning towards that. And another fact that we have from our research, when consumers choose a brand and change a brand, the reasons why that is, it is definitely the younger generation the of, that more often indicates that it's because of purpose. It's because of um, what the company stands for, how it treats their their employees, et cetera. Everyone does it, but predominantly the younger generation.
0: Yeah, And this purpose and values conversation, you you hear about it a lot, right? But I also hear, and I'm curious if you guys hear this as well, a bit of skepticism in certain pockets of the corporate world about whether an emphasis on corporate purpose actually pays off, because there is an attitude-behavior gap, right? Um, what do you say to a CEO who says, "Oh yeah, you know, consumers like to say they care about purpose and values, just like they say they care about sustainability, but really, we're at the po- when they're you know at the point of deciding to buy something, they only care about convenience or price." Or quality. Purpose is, is just a buzzword.
1: What's your response to that? It's necessary, but not sufficient. Um, so, you know, I think there's an increasing recognition that misalignment with a consumer's values um, may knock you out of the consideration set, but won't drive you over the line to purchase. So, you know, consumers are increasingly going to narrow the set of brands or goods that they consider based on some of those um, factors, but it, it won't be the thing that drives them to purchase. You still have to have product superiority, whether that's, you know, taste superiority or functional superiority, or whether it's, you know, price value, a price value equation, you know, that works for the particular consumer. You know, we talk a lot about the pandemic, which definitely shone a light on health in general, but I think, you know, there are other crises that have, you know, come to light over the last year, year and a half around, you know, social justice and climate change, um, you know, that have really shaken um, the, the corporate community and helped them to understand how some of these factors are really fundamental in terms of the way that consumers um, both perceive, you know, themselves and, and the world around them um, to the point where, you actually see some, some change happening um, as opposed to lip service, at least you know, based on my
3: observation with many of my clients. We have a certain level of social consciousness now that is perhaps heightened or is measurably different than it was in 2018 or 19. It's not only driving a shift in how consumers will evaluate brands and products and experiences, but I think the fact that consumers are now bringing that consciousness into the workplace and as employees are holding their employers to similar standards. I think that's what's going to become a really, really powerful and important change that will further spur companies to embrace this sense of purpose and think critically about all of these kind of values and um, and externalities, right? I think it's the employees at Google who are coordinated and passionate enough to stage a walkout. I think that is what will really collectively mobilize this broader business change um, but it has started with this rise in consciousness among consumers. You know, one of the things
1: that I was struck by is um, the, you know, kind of speed and seriousness with which um, many of the household cleaning companies responded to the pandemic and the, you know, kind of heroic efforts to, um, you know, to convert um, production capacity to things like you know wipes and sanitizer and yes some of that was for financial gain but I think there really was sort of a almost a wartime mentality that um, that I saw my clients you know really get n- new energy from if I think about my center of store um, food clients who pre pandemic maybe even viewed themselves as being you know kind of a bit sleepy and um, not exciting in terms of attracting the best talent. You know, when you hear them now talk about what they do, um, there's real pride in the fact that, you know, they they fed America, right? They kept America safe. They helped consumers keep their homes safe. It really changed the way that they think about the importance of what they do. Well, you know,
0: All three of you are experts in consumer behavior, but consumers are changing fast and they're changing constantly, right? Anjali, in another recent blog post, you wrote that rather than expect consumers to settle into a defined post-pandemic normal, CMOs should prepare For a constant evolution of consumer needs and expectations over the next 12 to 24 months. So beyond reading the latest research and analysis from Forrester and McKinsey, what are the best ways for CMOs and CEOs to understand where
1: consumers are? Yeah, one of the the best sources of insights is really through their online channel partners and their own D2C sites you know, using those to get a a quick pulse um, on the way consumers are thinking or feeling, looking at ratings and reviews, um, uh, you know, in an advanced analytics way to to understand and and see trends using data in terms of what's selling, whether it's on, you know, Kroger.com, Walmart.com or Amazon.com, and even developing product, which they can quickly test um, bring to test in a dot-com environment, and then change and adjust, change and adjust, as opposed to thinking about mass development of a product that gets pushed out to, you know, thousands and thousands of bricks and mortar retail stores. Um, so I, I think anything that that companies can do to mine um, online data, consumers don't always know what they want, and, and they can't at this point, predict how their behavior will change, and so traditional consumer research, which you know asked consumers how likely they were to you know purchase something, you know, is increasingly less relevant or reliable than actual data in market, which is why some of the data from online um, commerce sites, you know, can be so valuable.
2: I was going to say what is also very powerful related to this is what you see. Peers do. So peer companies. If you if you go to a conference like a CAGNI, where then uh, L'Oreal talks about how they use their DTC and their online sales platform to see what type of color lipstick do people really try? Um, not buy, but try on their online platform. And that, that information is really critical for them to then know where to innovate, what's the color platform that people want, and what are the products that people want to try out on the digital form of themselves. Uh, Similarly, I think it's very important to keep an open mind beyond your own borders to realize what's happening elsewhere in the world. Um, Going back to the the topic of purpose, um, it is very much alive in the US, it's also very much alive in Europe. And to learn there what the power is of what consumers demand and how that drives consumer decisions of, of companies, of CPG companies, And what companies there are doing to meet consumer demands is something to learn from wherever you are in the world.
3: This is probably a uh, really good moment for um, leaders to begin introducing new types of data collection into their portfolio, right? So instead of only relying on behavioral analytics or... Uh, primarily relying on survey data. Um, This is the time to introduce, um, you know, ethnography or digital ethnography, um, uh, focus groups right there could be qualitative online focus groups or other types of qualitative observational techniques to help round out the view of the consumer as a human being really not only as a consumer on this one journey towards purchasing from a specific brand, but as a consumer who was reaching for new tools and resources to make her life better and more resilient in this post-pandemic state. We had talked about in the beginning of the conversation, what surprised us, right? And there are so many interesting points that came up and we have been studying consumers for years and years, right? And we're still surprised. And I think this, this, um, mentality of constantly, um, questioning one's own assumptions about how a consumer behaves is really, really critical now. And there are so many fascinating tensions that need to be evaluated together to tell the full story. So yes, on one hand, consumers are doing more and more and more online. Um, and it's easy to kind of take that insight and run with it and believe that, okay, in the future, you know, everything is gonna be digital first. But at the same time, you know, we have seen in our data that something like 40% of consumers are also saying that they're tired of looking at their screens all the time and they wish they could disconnect, right? There is a technology um, strain that is very real and is measurably happening, right? consumers, yes, are spending more time thinking about how a company plays a role in the uh, condition of the environment, but over half of consumers are still strained economically and are going for the more convenient or safer option, even if that means perhaps sacrificing their values at the time of purchase. And so these kinds of tensions will only come to light when marketing leaders are looking holistically at the consumer and using multiple lenses to observe uh, the consumers decision-making process and pattern of behavior. I think we also um,
1: shouldn't underestimate the resilience of consumers and the gravitational pull of life as we knew it before. I think one of the things that surprised me, even in the last several weeks, is the degree to which behaviors have bounced back. And if there's anything I've learned over the last 18 months is that I don't have a crystal ball, or if I did, it is certainly broken because there is no part of this last eighteen months that I ever could have in a million years predicted. Um, but what what has been fascinating to me, even in just the last few weeks, I um, I attended a graduation ceremony, and um, you know I remember at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, there was a question posed by one of my companies they asked every board member when you look back what's the one thing that's going to be blazingly obvious that we should you know either always have done or never have never have been doing and one of the things that came up was shaking hands we're never going to shake hands again it should you know when this is all over it's going to be blazingly obvious that 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 you know you should never shake anyone's hand And I attended this graduation ceremony um, in the beginning of June. So, um, you know, really early on into, um, into recovery. And what was striking to me is that the dean of that school shook the hand and, you know, physically embraced every single one of the thousand students that crossed that stage. And this is at an institution that, you know, had, like most educational institutions, been incredibly um, thoughtful and conservative about their response, um, their public health response. and literally days after those restrictions had been lifted, the physical embrace, the you know urge to connect um, is so strong uh, that that it looked as if nothing you know none of this had ever happened. People are resilient. and you know, hundreds of years of behavior certainly have been meaningfully changed by the last 18 months, but I think, a lot of those behaviors um, will bounce back pretty quickly.
0: So final question, just to end, just very briefly, if you could gather all the CEOs and CMOs of consumer companies in one room and leave them with one message to, you know, what is the one thing they need to do to uh, ensure success or to position themselves better for success in 2021 and 2022, what would it be? What would your
2: one message be? My one liner one message would be, be open for change and be
3: agile. I would say, listen, don't tell. I would say that no company will survive the harsh climate of this decade, really, without a laser sharp focus on consumer emotion and motivation in addition to behavior.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Anjali, Anna, and Carrie. Great conversation, great insights. To our listeners, for the latest thinking from these experts, please see Anna and Carrie's articles on McKinsey.com and Anjali's research on Forrester.com. Till next time, I'm Monica Toriello. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com very soon. To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at McKinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.